Hey Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Rorillo and I've got a great guest lined up for you today. Now this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we're going to be diving deeply into topics at the intersection. Sometimes we're going to be interviewing thought leaders, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations that are tackling the challenging issues of our times. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I do want to ask a small favor. It won't take a minute and it would make a huge difference to us. Would you please go to iTunes or whatever app it is that you're listening to us on and subscribe and leave a rating and review? It just helps us to share our message of inspirational change with as many people as we can, and it helps our guests get their messages out to more people too. So thank you. Our guest on the podcast this week is Bilunji Ives. With over 20 years of experience, Bilunji is a branding, marketing, PR, and diversity professional. She brings to Align Academy the highest level of expertise, global experience, and established relationships with internationally renowned brands. It is through years of recognizing synergies amongst these relationships that she developed the marketing strategy brand alignment. As founder of Align Consulting, Bilunji consults senior executives, C-suite leadership, and founders of Fortune 500 companies at entertainment studios, celebrity foundations and nonprofits, multinational corporations, and NGOs in the development of corporate communications, diversity, and marketing strategies. So welcome, Bilunji. Oh, Jane, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I can't wait to dig into a conversation with you because I know there's some real alignment between what you're doing and what we stand for here at Sacred Changemakers. So, you know, our listeners here, they're likely not to know you. And right now, all they've heard is your professional bio. Mm -hmm. So I'd love you to kind of go behind the scenes of that a little bit and tell us a little bit about the real life human behind that professional bio. So, um, born in the 70s to parents who immigrated um, for a better way of life and educational freedom um, from Uganda to the United States. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father was doing his PhD in Judas Prudence, um, and my mother was doing one of her masters um, at Tufts University in international relations. And... I was born at a time where my parents were fighting for democracy in their home country. Um, and I was impassioned um, by activists and activism around me from a very early age. However, it wasn't until I got to college um, in 1992, and there was a lot of social unrest on campus. I went to Mount Holyoke College, graduating in 1996 with a degree in African and African American studies. It wasn't until I got to college and had the experience of social unrest due to um, the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, there was a lot of racial divisiveness on campus as we started to delve deeper into what it meant to be a person of color in the United States mm -hmm. um, and share our experiences. And I really feel that my experience at Mount Holyoke continued to foster a deeper understanding of how we are all connected in community mm -hmm. and the importance of that connection in dismantling things such as systemic racism. But it would be some years um, and a lot of experience, both personally and professionally, um, that brought me to who I am and where I am today. Wow, um, that's quite a journey. And um, I loved it when you said what it means to be a person of color in the US today. And I'd love to get your sense of, I know that was a lie for you 
you know, back in the 90s uh, on college campus. But mm-hmm. what does that mean to you today? I feel like with everything that has happened over the past year in 2020, mm-hmm. both um, with COVID-19, um, so the medical pandemic, but po- also the social pandemic when it comes to race and racism um, and the social unrest that has ensued as a result with the deaths of people such as Ahmad Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, I feel that I was called to a deeper understanding of my own purpose because in those realities, in those truths, in those murders on TV, I found myself feeling as though I was going through the five stages of grief in the sense that I was at the point of anger. And that anger was triggered by the trauma of seeing someone killed on TV in a way I'd never witnessed before. Um, And it stirred a lot of deep feelings and emotions that I was not aware of until then around the trauma of being a black woman living um, and growing up and working professionally in America. Um, Even though I've lived abroad, my husband's English, I've lived in England. um, And that also created a deeper sense of what it meant to be black. But I have to say it wasn't until this year, despite all the work I've done in the area of um, both diversity inclusion since graduating from college, Um, and community development, I don't think I was fully conscious of the impact of what it meant to be a person of color in America until I saw the murder of George Floyd. Mm. And how did that change things for you? It gave me, and I, I will have to say, as I said, I went through the stages of grief and found myself in the stage of anger Mm -hmm. and but I knew I couldn't stay in that place because I don't feel in my personal experience anger can be a motivator but if I were to get stuck in that anger I would lose the ability to be guided to a productive way of tackling racism and the feelings that I was feeling Um, that I knew many other people like myself um, also within the United States and globally were feeling. Um, So moving through those five stages of grief, I felt that when I asked a power greater than myself about what can I do? um, I was guided to developing my anti-racism workshop. Um, and the impact on that, of that workshop or workshops on myself and participants have been immensely profound. Mm. It has started a path towards healing of that trauma that was brought up by everything that has happened in the past year. Oh, I love the way you describe that, Belinji. I really do, because, you know, and as you know, you're not alone in, your, in, the, in the anger and the response that, that you, you have to what's happened this year and how it's really, you know, from my perspective, I notice a real crucible, or it feels like a crucible, like an intensity that now we can't ignore. And mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I hear that from you and I love how you describe asking, you know, a power greater than you, like, what, what can I do? Because one of the things we talk about here at Sacred Changemakers is, you know, about a, as business professionals, still having a sacred calling that, mm-hmm. that kind of guides us in our work. And it's very clear from the title you gave me for our conversation today, the path to an anti-racist society through love, compassion, 
and trust in a power greater than ourselves. Just that title alone, let me know you, my friend, have a calling here. So how would you describe that calling that you're now taking a stand for with your life and your work? Well, let me give you a little back up a little bit because it's kind of funny. You know what? I mean, a lot, I've done a lot of spiritual readings um, and was guided a lot through Oprah Winfrey, but in terms of a lot of the content that I read, yep. whether that be Eckhart Tolle, whether that be Marianne Williamson, uh, be Dr. Wayne Dyer, um, and so on and so forth. And one of the common threads that I would read or hear was that um, you'll know when you know, and if it's right, it'll be easy. And I was like, mm-hmm. first, when's that? <laughs> and I've yet to experience the easy part. Right. <laughs> but I have to say, I don't feel I was entirely guided in a complete sense of surrender in the way I was this year. I feel like that 2020 was so climatic and there was just so much outside of our control. Surrender was the only path for me forward, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And that was the component that I did not realize when I questioned in the past, okay, when, when am I going to be, when I know, I know when's that. And, um, it's going to be easy. Uh, okay. So now to present time or rather, um, a few months ago, um, in the development of this course, I literally woke up and I've been doing a lot of like, I've been doing a lot of internal work, um, spiritual work, um, emotional work and healing. Um, and so I said, you know, to a power greater than myself, I'm willing to hear whatever you need me to do and fully trust what that is, Mm. you know? And I woke up one morning, um, I go on these eight mile walks through nature. It's how I center myself um, or one of the ways I sent to myself and I was called to put together a curriculum through all the resources I happened to become aware of as of late and over my lifetime and in the compilation of this curriculum for this anti-racism workshop I was able to put together a workshop with relative ease. Now the work being done in the workshop is not easy, but the compilation of the curriculum and how it came to me was easy. It was almost like all the things I had been focusing on and the work I had been doing seemed to have not only a reason, but a purpose. And that is how the anti-racism workshop came to be. I mean, it was absolutely, um, I think divine intervention, to be honest, if I were to be completely transparent, because it had to be, because there's no way I could have done it on my own. There's no way I put this together by myself. (laughs) Right. You know, it just, No, I, I, you know, I, I cannot take full credit. I think it was a community and a power greater than myself that really um, allowed this to be um, manifested. Right. So I totally get that because um, I laughingly say sometimes that, you know, when I started out in business, First of all, I had a job, then I had a career, then I went self-employed, then I had a business with a purpose, and now I have a business with a calling. And that's what Sacred Changemakers is. It's tethered. It's it's demanded my complete surrender to the path. 
right? This is not Jane in her head working out, you know, what the next business strategy is for sacred change makers. It's literally going, you know, I'm kind of going where I'm being guided to go. And, and that's mm -hmm. why meeting you was so lovely through a mutual friend. Cause it was like, okay, yeah, I trust my mutual friend. I know I need to get Bilunji on the, on the webs on the uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. So I love how you're describing how, you know, there's some divine intervention here. And so what I, I want to get a sense of, if I can, is what's the purpose of this work? Like, what is it that you're aiming to do here through the workshop with other people? Because I know, and you've already mentioned that mm -hmm. this is a systemic issue. It's not just about the people and them like raising awareness to how we each contribute to the society we live within. Mm -hmm. But also there are systems at play here that also need changing. So I'd love to get a sense of where your work fits with this. Like what is it that your the purposes of, of this work for you? I think ultimately it resides in building a sense of compassion mm -hmm. through trust. And this is, this is, I think where a lot of diversity trainings, I mean, when it comes to diversity inclusion um, in the HR space, in the corporate space, um, these are efforts and policies that began in the 80s. Mm -hmm. However, it is incredibly clear how ineffective many of these attempts have been. Mm -hmm. Because we are finding still at some of the top organizations that diversity and inclusion has not made its way into executive leadership. And that is where the, um, the decisions are made. Mm. And I feel as though where these standard diversity and inclusion trainings have failed is in the building of trust. Building a trust between the total employee population of a company, large or small, with its leadership. Mm. And extending that trust to the consumers, the clients of those organizations, and the people they serve, either through their products, through their services. Um, and that's where, so basically my, my trust that was built in a power greater than myself to follow this path, the calling is therefore to build trust in the minds and hearts of others to work on dismantling racism, systemic or not, um, to its end. And just as I hear you say that, I have a sense, rightly or wrongly, and I, I hope you'll, you'll tell me, that this is a huge undertaking. Um, I myself have worked in the global space with senior executive teams now for over 25 years. And I know exactly what you're talking about. When, when I think about diversity inclusion as it was defined back in, when I first started my career back in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I understand it to be now, or as much as I can, uh, being a white woman of privilege the way that I am. Mm -hmm. um, but I get this sense that like any systemic change that needs to happen, there are so many connections and threads and complexities included that this is a big ask, um, is all I'm going to say. 
I think if we are able to distill the problem of racism mm. to its purest form, racism builds distrust, distrust, and its antithesis is the building of trust. It cannot function in a space of community where people trust the humanity of others. It feeds off of divisiveness and the lack of trust and fear. However, as humans, I had an amazing experience of watching um, a virtual um, or participating in a virtual webinar where an organization called the Nantucket Project um, released um, one of its uh, first episodes um, of a documentary where it follows um, members of this Nantucket project as they travel down the Mississippi River Road from, I believe, Minneapolis down to New Orleans. And along the way, they have conversations in small and big towns with people who live in these communities about race. And there is an instant where there is a gentleman, I believe his name is Troy, and he discusses what he wants from a white gentleman. Mm. You know, this gentleman says, what can I do? Yeah. What do you want? Right? Yeah. And he says, I want you to give up all your worldly goods. But if you were to, no, I mean, but however, if you were to listen deeper yeah. to that, and I am... I, this is what I hear. This may not be his truth, but this is what I hear. I heard that I want you to see my value. Hmm. I, or rather, I want you to recognize my worth as a human. Yeah. And what, to me, to distill that further... I want to trust that you will love me as a human because I am black and despite that I am black, that there is a beauty in difference that should be recognized and celebrated, but there's also a love deemed in our collective humanity. And for someone to open themselves up in that way, which ultimately dismantles racism at its root, because mm. it cannot exist in such a space where that type of um, human exchange exists. Mm. You know, yeah. you, need, you need trust because there's a vulnerability there. Yeah that he may not have been able to speak to because he was angry and rightly so. Yes, I get it. Absolutely. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get the <laughs> anger. But in the distillness of that anger is really someone saying, I want to be heard. I want to be seen. I want you to see my worthiness and recognize that I want to be loved the way I deserve to be loved as a human. And part of that collective humanity. But you have to build trust first before people can start to crack themselves open on that type of level. Right, right. And yes, there is a lot of work to get there because there's a lot of fears you have to upend and um, become aware of and dismantle and denounce. Yeah. I love what you're saying because... Um, a few months ago, um, I held a roundtable here on the podcast uh, uh, about um, the Black Lives Matter and everything that was happening at the time. 
and I had um, on the, on in the roundtable I had a guest who um, is a good friend of mine who's a professor at Columbia University, um, Professor Terry Maltbier, and t it was so interesting as I was listening to him because, and it's interesting for me listening to you today because you've made me realize that at the very grassroots of, of the issues is trust. And I haven't looked at it through that lens before, but I see how you're right because Terry told a story in the round table about um, being kind of um, a young guy that worked really hard at school and had a great teacher who supported him and, and championed him right the way through to university. So he got a great place at university. And although at the time he didn't really recognize what that person did for him, he really appreciates it now. And so he was kind of pulled out because he says, it's like I'm a white man in a black body because he's now a professor with all the privileges that that brings to him. But he said it was really interesting early in his career because he, um, he was he he got into one of the big five consultancies very early on after university and he he had a, a guy there his manager he he was in a team of five different consultants and one of them was going to get promoted at the end of this 12-month period and and um terry was actually the one selected to be promoted which meant he rose above the other four consultants who all happened to be white males he said and he said, no, although on one level it was great that I got the promotion and great I had someone who pulled me like up. He said what, what the, the white people around him didn't realize was mm. that the house wasn't built for him. Mm. That's how he described it. He said, even though I was pulled out and I, I was above these four white guys now, the structures and the systems that I was placed within weren't built for me they were mm. built for the white guys and when the white guys started moaning because they had a black guy above them it became untenable for him to stay in that position and i found that really interesting because for the first time it made me realize that there are many hidden factors in our world that contribute to racism in a way that you know, myself as a white woman doesn't always notice or realize because it's almost like, you know, the fish swimming in the sea. It's just the water that's around us. We can't name the water because it's just the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not using that as an excuse because I'm absolutely with you. I, I absolutely feel things need to change. But coming from England, I didn't understand the depth of racism here in America until I'd lived mm -hmm. here for about a decade. And then I started to really get a sense of how oh, visceral is probably the only word I can give you. I don't know that I have the language for this, but the visceral force of what has happened here is quite different to my experience in England. And yes, there's racism in England. I'm not saying there isn't, there is. But the depth here is, it feels to me like something different again. So I love, I love your lens of trust because for me, this, it's almost like you're applying a universal truth about humanity that, that really makes a difference here in this anti-racism space. So I love the way you're speaking because it feels accessible somehow the way you're speaking about it <laughs> it is um you know in listening to a lot of corporate um uh press releases right after you know mm -hmm. um george floyd and ahmaud aubrey and all of that and people said this is gonna we have a long journey to go yeah. And at first, that just rubbed me the wrong way because I was just like, wow, people like myself have been out in these streets doing this work. And to even iterate that it would be a long journey to bring about change is just like, 
wow, like it's so hard to stomach mm. when you hear it's good. We have a long journey. Yeah. The truth is, and this is, you know, I've done other podcasts and this, the timing of this one is beautiful. And I'll tell you why I'm deeper and further along in my anti-racism workshop um, work. Yeah. So I've had the opportunity to receive a lot of feedback from participants. I've worked with very diverse groups yep. in terms of either positions they've hold, held rather or hold, um, you know, differences in gender, in um, ethnic backgrounds uh, and experiences across the board. And the workshop is not a lecture. It is an acquiring of information and deeper understanding of race and the role we have all collectively and individually played mm. in it. And participants in their reviews, because I asked them to do a review and share their experience, have said consistently about the sense of trust that I built in the workshops where people felt comfortable enough to fully express not only their experience in and around race, but their vulnerability in that experience. Yeah. And that's the universal human perspective that is necessary not only to do this work but to bring racism to an end because if we're just all mad at each other <laughs> or we all just stay in a place where i don't trust you i see you i hear you but i still don't trust you that work really does not intrinsically get done yeah because in the building of trust we have to allow people who have collectively and in individually been oppressed by racism to start to trust individuals that participate in the role of the oppressor. Yeah. Whether they were conscious of that or not. Yeah. So, but also twofold the oppressor has to feel in order to move through this work effectively where it really leads to true change within themselves and then the organizations they go back to or the lives they go back to the families they go back to after the workshop where they continue to progress on on doing this work they too have to feel a sense of trust that I am going to express how little I knew about this, express my own frustrations, my own sadness. People have cried in this workshop. People have expressed complete shock. These are highly educated people, mind you. Don't, don't get it twisted that they're not exposed to these type, this type of information. There was a woman who stated that she majored in this area and that she has done decades of work in this area. And this was the best diversity training she'd ever participated in because of that deep dive that was allowed, the space that was created through trust. And I have to say, I've participated in diversity inclusion trainings and I've never had that experience like this mm. before. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. If people want to call it a journey or hard work or whatever, yeah. but it is building of trust. Yeah. So we can get down to the real work. Yeah. And you said that, you know, uh, this is great timing because you're deeper and further along now with the work. I'd love to get a sense of in your journey delivering 
this. Mm -hmm. um, what have you learned along the way? What have been your insights, Bilingji? You know, when talk about a sense of trust, I've heard from participants, white women, sharing the fact that, well, if we do reach full equality, I feel like that means I have to give something up. I've never heard that articulated to me as a black woman ever outside of this workshop, that level of honesty. Mm. And what is that speaking to? Consciously or unconsciously, there are people who are fearful about reaching social equity, equality, because They have the fear creating equality means that they have to give something up. And I'd never heard that. It took me, it took me back a bit. Cause I've always like, I mean, there's a moral imperative to do this work, but I didn't understand those real fears, whether they're grounded in, in truth or not because we haven't achieved equality. So the fear of what you may yet to lose with equality, um, no one has experienced yet. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? So, uh, <laughs> you know, you're fearing um, the, un, you know, you're, fe uh, you're fearing uh, assumptions, things that aren't necessarily real because they haven't actually happened. Right. But yeah, you, you know, the fact that we all have to wade through our fears and build that level of trust and, and be vulnerable. Mm. And I've learned from the white experience in a way I've never had before because of the level of transpa transparency within the workshop as a black female. Mm. That's why, you know, all people need to participate in this. This isn't about shifting the minds of the oppressor. This is about shifting all of our, our minds and me being vulnerable to share at times when I have been complicit in my own oppression mm. and what that may look like. Yeah. You know, and it's necessary to share that because when people are in positions of power, leadership, managerial positions with direct reports that might have people that look like me, if they witness someone complicit in their own oppression through various actions. That's something that they can now recognize because I shared that experience and they know what that may look like. And they can offer that, that direct report, um, that colleague, that family member, a level, you know, or whatever, a level of compassion and understanding they didn't have before the workshop to, to see that, to recognize that and let them know, you know, we all have choices here, but you don't have to do that here and you don't have to do that with me. Yeah. And I've certainly heard that fear before. Um, I've heard it from white male senior executives mm -hmm. where their perspective is that if, you know, if they are going to, open up and do the work and they see it as a, a, a or I, I've had some clients that see it as a, a power shift, which means that they're losing power to be able to give it to someone else, which is almost like a scarcity mindset. It is, it is <laughs> right? Which is like, because they I'm, don't have trust. They don't have trust. Right. They don't trust. They don't trust. There's going to be enough for all of us. Right. 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 You have to trust that's, that by sharing doesn't mean you're losing. Right. right. I mean, <laughs> the pie just continues to expand. It's right. not that it's that the pie is a fixed size. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do believe that there are issues that, that some white people hold in terms of power, but there's something underneath all of this for me, which is, and I'd love to get your sense of this, which is, I mean, trust is something that's not only relevant here in this conversation uh, of anti-racism, but I think it's something that's systemic 
through all of the inequalities that we have in the world now. You know, I think there's a distinct lack of trust. There's a distinct imbalance of power. There is blocks to access to things depending on, you know, where you are, you know, the color of your skin, where you live geographically. All these different elements feed into almost like a, I don't know, I kind of see it a little bit like a, a power base that's built on money and profit and I suppose the, the, the capitalism that we have. And for me, a lot of this needs dismantling. And this is an absolutely vital piece in the jigsaw of what we need to be doing when we think about what it means to be human. Because for me, at a very basic level, that's how do we be with each other? <laughs> despite differences, despite whatever they are, the fears, how can we just be with each other? Am I making it too simplistic? Do you think? No, I mean... Oh, but there's something in the, the tone of your voice there. <laughs> You're like, no, but... So the deeper the but? dive is... <laughs> To look at who sets to gain yes. by the perpetuation oh, of yeah. racism. Oh, yeah. Who are those people? Yes. And we delve into that in the workshop because you cannot dismantle a system if you do not understand how it works. Mm. And let me tell you, it's working. It's working. Mm -hmm. But the game for a, rigged, for, for a few people, I was gonna it's, say. <laughs> it's working real well. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, I know. For, exactly. for, for a few select, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Profiteers, it's working. Yeah. And that is the found, that's, that's the deeper dive with the workshop. That's, I, I detail how this all began and why and why for some small elite few it's so necessary to continue to perpetuate yes yeah and it's only fairly recently i've realized that you know most of us are living in a what i tend to think of as a rigged game it's rigged against us <laughs> Well, I recognize the truth in that. However, sitting in the role of victim mm -hmm. only perpetuates the system. Oh, yes. It's, it's when you recognize you can choose to no longer participate in that game. Then it doesn't matter if it's rigged or not. So tell me and, more uh, about that, because I don't... Bringing so... people on board. You got to get people educated. You know, that's the thing. Once enough people know what's what, and it becomes undeniable, mm. the jig is up. The game falls apart. The whole reason this system has perpetuated is a necessary ignorance that is critical to its success. And to dismantle that component of this system requires this work. Hmm. Now I can follow you through, I absolutely agree with you in terms of, you know, creating an anti-racist society. Where I suppose I challenge you mm -hmm. is in the universal aspect of coming outside of the game. Mm -hmm. I know, I know we can live off the grid, <laughs> um, but for most of us, that's not really a great option. Um, so we, we live in capitalist societies with structures and governing structures and mm -hmm. everything else that uh, to a certain extent we need to live within, even though we're trying to change those structures and systems to be more what we want. Mm 
So I'd love to have a sense of what's your vision for the world you want to live within. Well, ultimately, and I will re-challenge you yes, on do. that notion <laughs> in the sense that it's when I say when you no longer participate in the game, it yeah. doesn't mean you have to leave the chessboard. Right. You just change it. You can still stay on the chessboard. Okay. Just the game has to be changed. Mm -hmm. The power dynamic has to shift mm -hmm. towards equality for all. Mm -hmm. Where the pawn has equal power to the king. Yes. And, and has <laughs> and I mean I it, this. so I mean that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's not that you have to pack up and move. Because that means the game perpetuates. It just doesn't have you as a player anymore. But it's about changing the dynamics of the game itself. Right. It's about shifting and broadening awareness of the roles we play in the game and making the active choice every day through our beliefs, our thoughts, our behaviors, our actions to supporting equality. And as I said, you do not need to leave the chessboard to do that. Mm. Thank you for that, Bilunji, because I want to think about that at a deeper level. Um, I really do. Not leaving the chessboard. No, you don't have to. You don't have to. The work is here. There's nowhere to run. The work is here. Yes. And the work is here. <laughs> yes, and and there's there's from my, from my perspective, there's more than one filter or lens or system in terms of inequality that I would want to change in my mm -hmm. vision of the new world. And so when I talk about coming, as in your words, coming off the chessboard, mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like I feel that's not an option for me. I still need to, for example, earn money, right? So therefore I'm not going to go off grid and do that. But right. at the time, one of the, uh, so I've been making a number of changes in my mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. over the last, I would say probably about, well, it's probably been continuous, I would say, let's just say that. But it's almost like peeling back the layers of the onion, right? And what I mm -hmm. mean by that is I notice how I become aware to something and then, and then I, I open and do things differently there, but I'm still in the game. Like you say, I'm still on the chessboard because I, it's not until I'm aware of something else that I can go, Oh gosh, I hadn't realized that that's also contributing to the problem. So now I need to look at that as well. So everything from becoming vegan to being conscious in my consumerism to mm -hmm, thinking mm -hmm. about um, the way I contribute to racism, mm -hmm. Dealing with leaders that I work with, all these different elements. It's it's almost, right? And this is me, so I'll own it. Mm -hmm. Almost too big a change plan or strategy to hold. And the way that I move into this is just one step at a time. Exactly. Okay. So if I'm just 1% better today than I was yesterday, or moving towards the vision I want, mm -hmm. I'm good. So exactly. Yes. And, and, and the change begins with me, with each yes. individual. Oh, absolutely. It's the internal shift that changes how we experience our lives. Mm. But I want to come back to this trust thing that you've kind of put front and center for me because I've realized I've become vegan, for example, mm -hmm. because I don't trust the food supply chain anymore. I've seen the reality of what that is, and I don't want to participate in the animal side of it or even mm -hmm. the plant side of it now in the mass production. Mm -hmm. So, but I am in a position of privilege to make that choice. I can afford organic food. Mm -hmm. There are many, many people who, 
who are not in a position of choice because the game is rigged. That's kind of what I was talking about. It's like if, you're, if you've been born into poverty, I think it's very, very difficult in America, particularly if you're a person of color, to find a way and get access to the resources you need to find your way out of it. That's kind of what I mean. <laughs> well, I have found, um, growing up in poverty myself, I have found yeah. that for those who are educated and have a deeper awareness of themselves and others and their role, the roles that they play, mm. I think it's, our responsibility to change these systems yeah. that we benefit from, from in yeah. order to support those who do not. Yes. So it's not about like our path and our path alone. Yes, the change begins within ourselves. Yes, that's a necessity. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but we have to go back into those communities and do the work there. And give, you know, I volunteered, I told you I moved a lot. I've always mm -hmm. volunteered at Boys and Girls Clubs and, yep. you know, speaking to, to children who didn't have the same opportunities as myself, but look like myself mm -hmm. and show them examples of what is possible for them. Yeah. Even under the, the toughest of circumstances. Yeah. That I this, whatever life you want is for you if you choose it to be for you. Mm. You know? I do. And that the shift comes from within. But I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Mm. You know? Um, but I've always found when people are determined to shift their existence, to create a better life for themselves, people are sent to them along the way opportunities i'm telling you if you are committed yeah you know yeah. even um uh, that boxer his nickname was called the hurricane and he ended up in jail for i believe a crime he didn't commit um and it was in jail that he found his deepest deepest sense of freedom that's what i mean that's hey I'm not saying that can be that, you know, but yeah. anything's possible anywhere, anyhow, it, it begins and ends with you. Yeah. But even still, people do need support. I mean, when you have a lot of things, um,